Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon. I'm Erin Dewar, and we are not in print. Louis Naura is one of Australia's most successful writers. He has penned novels, crafted film scripts, authored two memoirs and worked as a librettist. But he is perhaps best known for his plays. Since the early 1970s, he has created over 30 stories for the stage. Several of them have earned a rightful place in the Australian dramatic canon and in our hearts. They include Summer of the Aliens, Cosy, The Golden Age, The Temple, and the piece that we're here to talk about today, Radiance which was first performed at Sydney's Belvoir Theatre in 1993, before being adapted to the screen in 1998. Cressy, May and Nonna are half-sisters with little in common, bar the ghosts from their childhood. They've returned to their childhood home on the eve of their mother's funeral. The tropical Queensland landscape is the spectacular backdrop for their turbulent and often humorous reunion. As the sisters struggle to find common ground, they discover a surprising bond that is stronger than the pain of their history. Told with passion and warmth, this bittersweet story burns a colourful and mysterious imprint on the mind's eye. Louis, thank you for talking to us about your play Radiance. Before it made its way onto the stage, it wound through two decades and crossed state borders. You cracked the play on a highway from Canberra, and then a serendipitous moment in a Melbourne pub showed you that this story was perhaps fueled by a nougat-flavoured destiny. But when reading your foreword, Women on the Mud Flats, what really stuck out to me was that a major plot point remained elusive for so long. And yet it seems fitting, symbiotic even, because that plot point remains a mystery until the end of the play. So I'd like to rewind now and ask you to share the genesis of the story with us from the beginning. Radiance was a play that came about because, although I'd written plays before, I'd actually never mixed with actors, and I was mixing a lot with Justine Saunders, Lydia Miller, uh, Rhoda Roberts, and a few other actors who were Aboriginal. And generally, I kept actors at arm's length, but I used to see these actresses um, often, you know, dinner parties, parties, and uh, just social get-togethers, and it was the first time that I'd ever looked at an actor and thought, I want to write a part for you that includes something of your personality that I've never seen on stage before. With Lydia, when I came to do the adaptation of Capricornia, I wanted her to play Toki, a 14-year-old girl, wild, feral girl, but in films and on stage and TV, she always played a, you know, an upmarket Aboriginal lawyer and somebody very self-composed. But I'd seen this other wild side of her, so I got her into Capricornia. And then later on, I wanted to see this other side of her, which can be rather stern and dramatic and aloof. And I wanted to use that part of her. With Rhoda, there was a very playful side of her personality, but it was also that she forgave everybody for their emotional weaknesses. And I wanted that in a play. So I was kind of interested in that mixture, but Lydia and Rhoda approached me to write a play for them, and I didn't want to do a vanity project. But then um, one day I was driving down from 
Canberra to Melbourne and uh, the idea of the play came to me through an image. I had been writing residence in uh, Rockhampton, but I was living on the beach at Yapoon, which has mud flats that go out for miles and miles. And I saw a figure at dusk, a, a girl on the mud flats, and that image stayed with me. It was a lonely figure, but a dramatic figure. And beyond that mud flat lay Great Keppel Island, and it seemed as though she was walking towards it. So after that trip from Canberra, where you said that you cracked the play on a highway, you walked into your local pub. And you saw sitting on a mantelpiece a tin. Yes, it's one of those things that happen when you're a writer. You come up with an idea and you leave yourself psychologically vulnerable to any influence that's going to help that idea evolve or change it. And so I walked into a bar. It's like a comedy routine. A guy walks into a bar and I saw this tin and it was Radiance Nougat. It's a very old-fashioned tin you know, uh, from, uh, I don't know, the 1920s maybe, 1930s. And I realised that's where the ashes would be. Uh, they'd be in a sweet tin. So eventually I asked the owner for the tin and he wouldn't sell it to me, so we had to rent it out every night. <laughs> uh, and in the original production, of course, the second act is filled with water and, of course, the tin rustled away through the production. When you actually got into the rehearsal process with the three original actors... They specifically said that they did not want this to be seen as a, please note, inverted commas, an Aboriginal play. And I think that's one of its great successes because it still stands as one of the only plays or stories even about Aboriginal women which focuses on their humanity, on them as people and individuals and not just their humanity as seen through the prism of racial issues or colonial history. But what I'm really interested to hear about is how that affected the story in the room and I just wanted you to talk to us about the shifts in the narrative and the script even once that choice was made. The play does go beyond Australia's boundaries. For instance, just being a production in Italy, God knows how they did it. So that was a really good feeling because it went beyond just being this play that had an Aboriginal content. You see, when I've written for Aborigines, um, one of my aims has always been to avoid a problem that Aboriginal actors have, is when they go on stage to both Aboriginal and the character, they carry an extra burden, which is their Aboriginality, because it's pointed out in the shows. One of the things about working with the girls is, you know, we, we looked around, it's not as if an Aboriginal family go, turn around, look at one another, go, hey, you're Aboriginal, did you know that? What about our Aboriginality? You know, mm-hmm. So we wanted it to go deeper than just an issue. So we decided that we wouldn't mention Aborigines. We wanted the audiences, because basically you've got a huge white audience, wanted them to go into the theatre and gradually become involved in the play about three women, not three Aboriginal women. We're very keen on that. Had a woman director, Rosalba Clemente, and um, we spent a lot of time talking about secrets and families. I was still, it was a while from cracking it and there was a something I couldn't resolve and Rosalba, the director, came up with, well, there is the great secret there and this is what everybody's hovering around, this black hole, this secret. And once she'd said that to me, I, I realised that I'd cracked something that I wasn't aware of consciously but we were, we were all aware that we were missing something until that breakthrough. So, Louis, I want to talk about the characters' relationships 
to each other, but also how the ghost of their mother influences that. Yeah. So Chrissy May and Nonna's reunion is an occasion of grief, celebration and reconciliation. The sisters' bonds are complex because of the secrets and lies that are both part of their past and of their present. And I want to talk about the relationships between these women and how their varying alliances are perhaps haunted by that most primal of female relationships, that of a mother and a daughter. What is it about this relationship that you were so interested in exploring with these characters? I was interested in how you establish personal dynamics if you really don't know one another very well Mm. and you've been separated over time. The other thing that interested me was how Cressy dealt with that sort of sense of being detached from her mother. She built up this front. She's an opera singer. She's she's aloof. It's it's one way for her to psychologically survive. Pity the people around her. Mm. I've been knowing a few divas in my time. (laughs) And then May has done exactly the same thing. She's sort of um, encased herself in, in, in this protective security blanket. And also one of those sisters that you get who who, who always say, I'm the one who looked after the parents. I'm the one who did it. So there's a slight martyr complex that they always have. The middle child martyr. Uh, Yeah, little child. (laughs) And with Nona, what interested me was that she was unprotected, psychologically unprotected. And so that innocence, as it were, it's her belief that there is good in everybody. But she hasn't been as hurt, obviously, as Cressy has or as May has. You know, these two women, the May and the Cressies, the older ones, think they know who they are, but they probably don't, you see. That's Mm. part of their journey, really. Cressie and May see this woman quite differently from Nona. How does their different experiences of their mother shape them as individual people, do you think? It's how you see your mother when you're growing up. For example, my mother had many, many affairs, and so when you're a kid... You kind of see the mother's behaviour in in a weird um, pejorative way. You know, you, you just go, surely you should be looking after us rather than rooting around, really. <laughs> and for these two daughters, May and Cressy, the same thing. They've seen her, you know, having flings with you know the sugarcane farmer and and other men. And what you also see is that sort of sense of desperation that a woman has of a certain age when she's you know, got boyfriends and, and everything, and that sort of changes your attitude too. Mm. But for women especially, it changes their attitude to sex. I'm not going to be like that. You know, I'm not going to be like my mother. I'm not going to be, hence Cressy. You, know, you have a sense that she doesn't have a very strong sexual life because quite simply that means that um, you're going to end up like your mother. Mm. And, well, uh, and they like, look, you know, and they look at no, no, basically, you're just like mum, you know, you're just a slut. Yeah, uh, and, and that's a very powerful thing. That sort of sexual dynamics between mother and daughters, I think. Yeah, May's kind of the one that's particularly angry, though. Well, May's a- angry because this is the thing about certain women is that they take on the role of the provider for the dying parent or the sick parent. And Jenny, the rest of the family is going, well, thank goodness, you know, somebody's looking after her. And at the same time, you're losing your youth and and the parent doesn't seem to kind of really appreciate what you're doing. The parent seems to prefer the other um, daughters to you. Mm. And with the mother going mad, you know, May in a way went mad herself. And I, I think... 
that that's how she's keeping herself together is in that sort of sense of martyrdom. Yeah. You know. And what she's afraid of, of course, if she lets go, she's going to go 100%. She's not going to go 5%. She's going to go either or. Mm. That's what she's afraid of. If she drinks too much alcohol, she's going to become an alcoholic. That's what she's afraid of, which is why she's so self-contained. And she does go all the way in the end. I mean, her whole plan is to burn down the entire house. Yeah, yeah, well, as you do. As you do. Yeah. And it's so convenient for Nona that May has taken on this kind of responsibility because Nona has no intention of taking it on, does she? No, well, she's um, she's just preoccupied with herself, really. Hmm. And I I think that's what's interesting about her. She has no sense of responsibility, but gradually as the events unfold, she takes it on herself to scatter the ashes. She takes on a responsibility which is larger than herself. Yeah, known as quite the, the dreamer, I suppose, which aligns her with her mother. Eventually we discover that this is her grandmother. She rejects May's offer of wearing her frumpy dress to the funeral and she says, it wouldn't be me, mum wouldn't recognise me in this. How does her behaviour affect the way that Cressy and May relate to her? The first thing is that she, her behaviour just reminds them so much of their mother mm. and how the mother constantly got into trouble with all the boys and men, pregnancies and everything else like that. The second thing for Cressy, as we'll find out, it's a, another aspect of Nona that she doesn't like, which is a reflection on her, which we'll eventually find out. Mm. So for, for Cressy, there's two things. For May, it's just stop behaving like slutty mum, really. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of a redirected anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also this sense, though, that May lords this knowledge of her mother over Nona when she puts on the wedding dress. And she comes in and she tells Nona that their mother had been saving for it for two years on lay-by and Nona doesn't believe her. She didn't realise that she wanted to get married. And May almost taunts her, actually, and says, see, you don't know her. You don't know her at all. You don't realise what she was like. Yes, I, I... I think that's very important. The thing about the wedding dress for me was always that underneath that supposed slutty exterior of the mother, there was this romantic. Mm. And she did want the white wedding. Mm. And I, I think for, for, for Nona being young, what she liked is the mother didn't seem to have that those ridiculous middle-class dreams. And I think what May's actually doing to Nona is going, see, she had dreams. You know, you didn't know her. You think you know her. And this is a constant trope that goes through the whole play. You thought you knew this. Mm. You didn't. Um, you thought you knew him or her. You, you, you didn't. And so the ground is constantly shifting from under them about what they did know and therefore what they do know now. Is that the truth? Yeah. So it's constantly shifting for the poor girls. Yeah. I just want to touch on Nona and Cressy. Nona seems to be looking for approval and love from Cressy, which is interesting because she doesn't realise the truth of their relationship. She even says at one point, you're ashamed of me, and she's so concerned about how Cressy sees her. Cressy has a number of opportunities to reveal to Nona, yet she doesn't. And it's not until Nona takes things way too far that Cressy is pushed over the edge, and she says, you were created from dirt. He never raped her after a, a beat she finally says, it was me, he raped me. Um, I just, I wondered if you could talk to us about what that relationship is for the two of them. 
One of the important things in theatre, I think, is to understand when things are not being said mm. or if things are not being done. One of the things we talked to Lydia about um, in playing Cressy was when she comes back after these years and she sees Nona is that she has to keep her distance from her for a while. And all the time for Lydia was that she's watching Nona. She's sickly watching Nona. How much are you me? Mm. Is there anything I can see in you that kind of redeems me, that tells me I've got there was something good in me? And she's constantly judging Nona. And you know, there's a moment when Nona puts on a um, kimono and that is that... To us, it was always a Cressy thinks she looks beautiful. She could easily be a beautiful opera singer doing Madame Butterfly. And that's a great moment for two things. Cressy. Cressy changes, obviously, being an opera singer. She comes alive on stage when she's dressed as somebody else. And she sees Nona dressed as somebody else. And Nona finds a different identity in this kimono. But it's that point that Cressy sees a part of herself in that. I wanted to talk to you in greater depth about secrets and mysteries. The clarity of thought and action in the play is is contrasted with this mystery that they all share, which is a mystery of one's origin. They're not quite sure who their father is. They have ideas. They all have ideas about who we might be. And you've said that sometimes the core of one's identity is based upon a secret or a mystery. The mystery of Nona's lineage is uncovered, but it's not resolved. Cressy and May don't even get that far at the end of the play. They're still left wondering who they are. And I just wanted you to talk to us about why it was important that all three of the sisters are not quite sure about their origins. Uh, I think because it makes a more unstable mix for a start, and it makes a, a drama, they start off from a very unstable perspective as it is. And how have they kind of tried to stabilise their identity uh, May by being a dutiful daughter uh, and Cressy by pretending to be somebody else all the time in yeah. an opera. And Nona is fixated on sex as an expression of love. She's wild and free, moving from town to town, job to job, man to man, wig to wig. <laughs> and she's based her identity on two people that are not her actual parents, yeah. this woman that's not her mother, but also the Black Prince. She says... Mum said he was really handsome. People called him the Black Prince. Every night I went to sleep dreaming of him. I'd never seen him. Not even a picture, but I knew I'd recognise him. One day there would be this man, this guy, standing tall in cowboy boots, leaning against a veranda post. You know, the silent type. He'd be grinning, and I'd see him in me. And I wonder whether or not you could talk to us about this idea that you implant in your head of who you are and why it was important that Nona thought of herself as a cowgirl. One of the things about Nona is you can't take her at face value. Her cowgirl speech is really based on a very romantic notion, and it's slightly over the top. Her her dream is like something out of a bad Sam Shepard play. (laughs) And she needs that fantasy because... In essence, deep down, I wanted the audience to think she's exaggerating a bit too much. She's probably hidden from herself, as a lot of people do, the grim reality of what he was like. That mercurial nature of Nona is very hard for the actress playing her to pin down as it is for the 
actors around her because the actress has to make a lot of decisions. Is my character meaning this now? Or is she pulling a leg of Cressy? That to me is fascinating because that allows an actor to take hold of the role and find out, is this the true moment? Is this, you know, pulling a leg? And with Nona, that's what we're attempting to do. And there's this very direct moment where Nona actually visits Cressy backstage after seeing Madame Butterfly and she says that she's in full makeup, she's got Jap eyes, Jap skin, because it's almost the only way that Cressy can actually sit and talk to Nona at that point is behind a mask. Absolutely. It's also my hatred of going backstage. I loathe going backstage and seeing actors in their makeup. I don't want to see that. But also here's <laughs> her mother and her sister having this moment with her where she can't break character, so they have to eat on the floor and eat Japanese food. Yeah. And she can't be honest with her either. She's still very much locked in that controlled form of escape where she can only really let go of all of the pain that she feels inside two hours a night on stage and the rest of her life is based around this force that she puts into that to try and control the pain. The beautiful thing about being a performer is the loss of self. And when you're unsure about yourself, to become somebody else, somebody who all the eyes are riveted on you, is something that's supremely important for somebody like Cressy because it gives her life meaning when the rest of it has no meaning. May kind of finds a form of escape through nursing for a little while, or so it seems. But then she falls for one of the surgeons at the hospital. He wasn't in love with her, but she tried coaxing him. So bad did I want him, she says, that I showered him with presents. A watch at first, a briefcase. I couldn't stop. I swamped the poor man with presents. There's a word for someone who has a compulsion to steal, right? There must be a word for someone who is a compulsive gift giver. But worse still, she stole the money from the nurse's fund to buy the presents, jeopardising her career and her freedom in this desperate, desperate need for love. And I just wanted you to talk about May's feelings about herself, her family, her lack of understanding of her own origin. I forgot all that. I forgot May said all that. (laughs) Um, But it makes perfect sense now that you're telling me. (laughs) There are some women like May who live this life of self-imposed drudgery and when they do fall for somebody, they implant so much on it, so much on the relationship and one can imagine May's wild fantasies, you know, romantic fantasies and what's going to happen in the marriage and everything. She would have all planned the marriage and everything, looked at the mother's dress and gone, you know. Mm. So... You know, that to me is the real, I don't remember that speech and probably one of the reasons why I don't, it's probably the saddest mm. um, because of the just the desperation, you know, that she reveals. And hence, the compulsion as well. And, and compulsion, hence you get the feeling that she is either or, if she's going to give a present, she's going to give a hundred presents. <laughs> you know, she's not going to put you know, an axe through the house, she's going to burn the whole damn thing down. You know, it, that either-or quality, which is released in this, um, you know, particular play, is you know something that is really what she's afraid of too. Just as Cressy's afraid of letting go. We shift from inside that eerie family home, raised in safety above the earth in Act One, and we land on the wide-open mudflats under moonlight, with the encroaching expanse of water at the start of Act Two. 
we finally leave these women at the end of the play watching their house burn to the ground. And in fact, one of my favourite lines from this play is in Act 1, Scene 3, where the home and the environment start to merge as one. And it's the first time we hear the sound of thunder and Nona poetically calls it moving furniture in heaven. How have some of these evocative images been realised in the staging of this play? The first thing is that one has to remember the the first half set inside the home has a gothic sensibility to it. Mm. Under the house is a secret. Yes. Right. So, so you have that. I was very interested in it being set in northern Queensland, in the rainforest and the sugarcane plantations. One mustn't forget that. It's terribly dramatic. The burning down of the house is like the burning down of sugarcane fields. The fire is fantastic. Mm. I didn't want that. You know, a lot of plays with Aborigines are sort of set in the desert and or set in the cities. Whereabouts, I, I know the far north very well, and to me that's more visually interesting for a start. Mm. Also, I, the play came about the image of this woman on the mudflats. But what I, I was fascinated about was at the time was having real water, real mud, mm. because I thought it gave it, curiously not, not a naturalism to it, but almost a surrealism to it because when you're sitting in an audience, you see real water, you kind of go, oh, that's real. Yeah. It goes beyond naturalism. It goes somewhere else. And so the, you saw that their, their clothes were wet and muddied truly, that when they ran through the rain or danced through the mud that, that was there, that they had gone from a house to the elements. Yeah. They were now it's primal, mm-hmm. now primal. The shifting furniture in heaven relates to me about Cressy shifting furniture in a hotel room all the time. Mm. You know, that was her equivalent of a thunderstorm every night. Mm. And so it was the elementary thing that by let by the more that they freed up and told each other the truth, the more there was this psychological explosion that was um, typified by the weather, you know, the thunderstorms, the fire and, and everything so that what always fascinates me is how the natural elements reflect your psychological condition. Well, finally, in your forward, Women on the Mudflats, you wrote about how this, of all of your plays, is the one full of the most vivid memories and images for you. It is your only play which you say you could have gone back to night after night. Yeah. And we've been speaking about secrecy and mystery and identity and secrecy and mystery as, as keys to understanding identity, really. And I just wondered if, after all this time, if you've managed to unlock that curious attraction that you have for this play. One has to understand, as premier production, it was a flop. So it was easy for me, on a practical level, to turn up on the nights that I wanted to and just sit by myself because there was hardly anybody else there. <laughs> but I generally will see the opening night of a play and then see the closing night. I love the closing night. By that stage, the actors have got everything mm-hmm. right, one hopes. Uh, But, you see, I'm not interested in the audience. I'm not interested in applause or or, or anything. A lot of playwrights turn up night after night so they can hear the applause and, you know. They want to watch the reaction. They want to watch the reaction. Mm. My Uncle Bob used to do that every night with Mm -hmm. No Names, No Pactual, which was a hit. Mm -hmm. And I I couldn't stand that because I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is whether I feel it's working, whether it needs more work. And then by that stage, it was generally, you know, a year and a half or two years that I've come up with the idea, so I'm bored. With Radiance, 
I found myself turning up every third night or fourth night, which was big for me to turn up because even when I direct, I don't turn up that often. Mm. And I, I thought to myself, why am I turning up? And I would watch these, you know, actresses, and I, I th- was always there was another secret there that was hidden from me, and I didn't know what it was. And I would watch night after night, and I'd get really really disturbed about 10 minutes towards the end and I I couldn't understand why. I've never solved the problem but it was like the secrets have been hidden from the girls and Mm. a big secret has been hidden from me and I wrote it and, and, you know, that's how conscious I am Mm. uh, of of my themes which, you know, that's been sarcastic. I'm Mm. generally not very conscious at all but this one really excited and bothered me uh, and I, I have no understanding of what the secret was or, or or why I was thinking like this, these imaginary characters. Why should I be worried about a secret imaginary characters have? Hmm. But uh, it's always bothered me. Thank you so much for speaking to us about Radiance. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter. This recording was generously produced by Rachel Corbett in Sydney, Australia, in association with Currency Press.